Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good morning. I'm Mark Zitter, chair of the Zetima Project and a proud member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. As you just saw in the previous video, one year ago this week, I moderated for the club the first all-digital program on the pandemic. At that time, the Bay Area had just implemented shelter-in-place orders, uh, first in the country to do so, and soon states and regions around the country followed suit, and uh, life in America changed uh, for a long time. It still has changed. In recognition of the first anniversary of this shelter-in-place order, the Commonwealth Club is featuring a series of programs this week on the pandemic, looking both backwards at what we've learned and looking forward. Since the, be the beginning of the crisis, the Commonwealth Club has produced more than 400 digital programs, and nearly a quarter of those have focused on pandemic-related issues. You can find those programs on our website at commonwealthclub.org. We want to thank all of our sponsors and donors who made this programming possible, and a special thanks to Salesforce, who's supporting one of the programs in the series this Thursday. When you're on our site, please consider becoming a member of the club and donating to support our nonprofit programming. This pandemic has posed some significant challenges for the club, but we fully plan with your support to emerge from this crisis stronger than ever. Okay, to today's program. The last time I hosted any Slabbit at the club was May 13th of 2020, when America had seen 1.4 million cases of COVID-19 and 88,000 deaths. As of today, March 16th, 2021, we've seen more than 30 million cases and 550,000 deaths. These are numbers that just seemed inconceivable last spring. But two major things have changed since then. First, obviously, we have multiple safe and effective vaccines for COVID-19. Second, we have a new administration with Andy Slavitt running point for the country's defense against the coronavirus. And we're delighted to have him here today to review the past year and tell us what we can expect for the future. Andy's initial government experience was as a consultant brought into the Obama administration to rescue healthcare.gov, the internet portal for the Affordable Care Act's marketplaces. His successful fix there led President Obama to ask him to head the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Upon leaving office, he worked as a private citizen to protect the Affordable Care Act and improve the healthcare system, especially for underserved Americans. And he spent much of the last year counseling federal, state, and local officials from both parties on the pandemic. And he's now the senior advisor to the COVID-19 response, where you can see him running the White House COVID press briefing several times a week. If you have a question for Andy, please leave, please, uh, leave it or use the, uh, the YouTube chat feature to ask it. Uh, the questions that you put there will be submitted to me, and I will get to as many as I can during this session. I don't think I'll be able to get to them all. But we'll get to as many as we can. And at this point, I'd like to welcome Andy back to the Commonwealth Club. Mark, it's good to be back at the Commonwealth Club. And uh, it's, it was nice to watch the video and watch you age a decade in the last year. Yeah, I felt like that. I don't think as much as you have because you've had a, a lot going on. But let's let's talk about that. Do you remember the first time you realized that COVID-19 was going to be a, a serious pandemic with real implications for all of us? I do um, because it was um, last January, February, when um, somebody sent me over a, um, a little graph of what was going on in China and what had begun to go on in Italy 
And um, I looked at it, found it interesting. And when they told me that the U.S. was headed up the same epidemiological curve as Italy, um, it took on um, really significantly different meaning for me. And um, I remember asking this epidemiologist what could be done about it. And they said, oh, it's too late. Um, the die is already cast. Um, we, if we'd acted a few weeks ago, we might have been able to go on South Korea's curve, but we didn't, and so we're headed this direction. And for a uh, brief period of time in, in February, when um, people weren't so much talking about this, I was going on cable news, and I was off in the last slot. Um, they were talking about everything else, and then in the last two minutes, they would talk about the pandemic. And uh, such was the case up until the middle of March. Yeah. We don't, we quoted some deaths. It's easy to get lost in abstract statistics about cases and deaths, and, and you clearly have to have a handle on them. But I've always found you'd have a, to do a great job of, of keeping the heart in all this, keeping in mind that these are real lives we're talking about. How do you do that? And how do you manage through all this emotionally? I think it's hard for all of us to keep this, not only keep in mind the losses, but be generous in how we define these losses. Because some people's losses are indeed, um, they've lost a family member. Um, to other people, um, they haven't been able to see a grandparent in a year. Uh, to others, they have not, uh, they've lost a year of schooling. To others, they, they've, they've lost a business that they maybe started a decade ago and it was their life's work. And um, all those kinds of, of suffering are real. And, and they, they, they don't really need to be compared. Um, and we... I think our way out of this has always been to figure out what we have in common and to unify and to remind each other not to feel guilty, but to feel a sense of solidarity because um, it is that feeling um, that we can all contribute something that helps us get through this. Um, it's actually the helpless feeling that um, something big is going on around us and we can't control it. Uh, that's what frightens us. Um, but when we actually do something and that thing is, has been as small as sewing a mask or delivering a meal or phoning a friend or a relative and saying a kind word, um, uh, you know, we're, we are in many ways contributing to what's going to bring this to a stop. And I think that's the philosophy that we've tried to bring into this office, which is that the government, there's a lot we need to do. There's a lot we need to be accountable for, but we really do need to call on the country to come together. And only if we do that, will we be able to get our way through this pandemic. Well, in terms of feeling in control or doing something, one of the main things you did last year before you took this gig uh, was to start a podcast called In the Bubble nearly a year ago. I think it was last April. And uh, for those people who haven't listened to it, it's an attempt to help us all understand and, and cope with this new reality of living in our bubbles. Uh, your son, Zach, was co-host. You interviewed your wife, your niece, friends. You had guests ranging from scientists and politicians to uh, comedians and psychologists. So tell me, why did you start the podcast? And really, what did you learn from hosting it? You know, I thought what people needed was sort of part-time Winston Churchill, part-time Fred Rogers. Um, and, and I'm not capable of, of um, much more than um, being a kind of a helpful voice. But it was actually the, the idea of my 18, then 18 year old son, Zach, who, who came to me one day during the pandemic. He was home from school, uh, doing school work from home. And he said, gee, dad, we should do a pandemic. We should do a podcast about the pandemic. And I said, really, Zach? And what was going through my mind was, 
I couldn't think of the last time my 18 year old had actually asked his dad to do something with him. So, so Mark, he could have asked me to rake the leaves and I would have been equally enthusiastic, but he asked, he said, we should do a, we should do a pandemic. And I asked him, well, what do you think we should do? He said, well, dad, you know, you spend your day talking to governors and scientists and um, people working on solutions and stuff. Why don't you just record those conversations? Just talk to people. Um, and, and so I said, okay, if you'll do it with me, um, I'll, I'll do it. And it was, it was incredibly rewarding. Um, you know, the, I think not every show was great, but overall Apple named it as one of its top podcasts for the year, because I think there was a certain amount of, I'd like to think at least there was a certain amount of honesty in it. You know, these were real conversations. Um, I'm not a professional interviewer, um, used to being interviewed, but not interviewing people, which is hard. What you're doing is very hard, actually. And and so I just found myself um, trying to trying to learn something, and and then also just not. I think we had try not to just focus on how to think about things, but how we're feeling about things, which is a lot harder to to talk about. It. But but you know the the way this all made us feel, um, which is just new territory. I thought it was just really important to kind of have that dialogue. Well, it's one of the beauties of the podcast because you're having those dialogues about humans and how we're feeling, but you're doing it with governors and senators and other people who are really, uh, you know, pulling some of the levers on what can be done. Um, so you've had this bird's eye view in many ways. It's a little bit different for most of us. What, what has surprised, delighted, disappointed you most over the last year with response to the pandemic? You know, it, I'm not the first one to say this by a long shot. I'm probably the 10,000th person to say it. But, it, it, you know, a, a flashlight has been shined on the the goodness and the ugliness of our country. Um, some of the ugly, uglier sides, um, you know, how, how we have um, often not come to the aid of other people suffering. Um, we've been... Um, shown less probably willingness to sacrifice for the common good um, or put aside kind of our personal liberties. Um, we've politicized things that, that really had never been politicized before. I mean, they would have been hard anyway. Um, and, you know, we, 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 I think, have this sense of ourselves as this sort of exceptional country that's above the kinds of problems that have challenged the rest of the globe for so long, not that different from nine 11 when I think we were, we were just taken completely by surprise that this could happen here. And I think when it happened here, um, you know, we didn't always react well. We certainly didn't, didn't um, react well from a public health standpoint, but the public also, I think really struggled. On the other hand, uh, um, there was enormous heroics, obviously, um, people in the healthcare system, career civil servants, scientists, um, citizens—you um, know—people reaching out. There was a lot of 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 good, and you know. And then, as you said, um, this this work that had been done, this basic research that had been done in messenger RNA to pick one of the technologies um, that had been sort of almost on the shelf um, at the beginning of this. And, you know, I think it was a, it's a powerful story for our investment in basic research because we were able to, by March, get a vaccine into testing um, by March of last year, which is just absolutely incredible. 
um, there's a lot of hard things we had to do after that um, and, and still do in terms of, um, you know, none of this is simple. This vaccine distribution effort that we're overseeing now is one of the most complex things we've ever done as a country. But, you know, we have shown we can rally. And unlike last year when we were trailing the world, when we were leading the world in deaths, we were trailing the world in our response in many respects. This year we're leading the world in, in vaccinations and um, we're, we're gaining on it. And um, that's got a, lot, got a lot more to do. But, but I think believing in ourselves again as a country that we can actually tackle this crisis um, is, is really important for us. Yeah, the new administration has definitely made some changes. And let, let's talk about that. When the Biden administration took over just a little less than eight weeks ago, uh, what was the state of the pandemic response effort you found? And then um, what has the administration accomplished in that last uh, almost eight weeks? Well, I want to be careful in answering this because this is really not, nor should it be, um, an answer which in any way belittles the work that came before us. Um, there's no point in that. Um, this this vaccine and this vaccination process, people should not be looking at it through their political lens. There's a lot of a lot of things we look at through our political lens these days. This vaccine should not be one of them. And so um, I'm appreciative of all of the people and all of the work uh, that was done to make these vaccines um, a reality. A lot of it was done by the same people that I continue to work with. Uh, People, people like Peter Marks in the FTA, uh, people like Tony Fauci in the NIH, um, people um, who were really career civil service heroes who just did just tremendous work. Um, but um, we, you know, I think we came in and we had to level set with the public a little bit because the public had been led to believe that there were 40 million people would be vaccinated by the end of December, 100 million by the end of January. And we were we were far from that, and we didn't have enough uh, vaccine production. So um, we had to do a, a lot of things, a lot of blocking and tackling to move things forward, um, including um, accelerating production, including opening up mass vaccination sites all over the country, including distributing directly into retail pharmacies, bringing thousands of people out from FEMA and the and the DoD to start vaccinating people. We basically just started treating this like a 24 by 7 emergency crisis. We started running the factories 24 by 7. We were able to squeeze more production into um, a shorter period of time. And we accelerated our ability to get um, all of the vaccines we need produced for Americans um, in what, when we got here, um, looked like it was going to be the end of 2021 to the point where the president announced a few weeks ago that it could be done by the end of May. And um, that <coughs> and a few other things a lot have allowed us, you know, we've now tripled the amount of vaccines that are administered every day. Um, we've increased the productivity of the, the people doing the vaccines by like 50%. So more vaccines are getting into arms more quickly. Um, and we have a few challenges ahead. Namely, there are still people who have to decide whether they want to take the vaccine um, and, th and there's some very important issues. We've got the, the variants, as I'm sure we're going to talk about, which are um, uh, threatening our progress. And then we've got a tired public who is just, um, they're really done with this and they want to be back to normal life. So we're not, we're not around the corner yet, but we can now see it. And the president's able to describe 
what it might look like if we all came together, uh, being able to get back more to normal life this summer. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're gonna the club's gonna have a big program on vaccinations tomorrow with the White House vaccinations coordinator. But uh, so we'll go deep then. But I do want to talk a little bit more about it now. And you you brought up the notion of uh, vaccine hesitancy. There was an NPR PBS survey that just came out. Uh, yeah, well, this week, um, which showed a couple of interesting things. One is uh, the vaccine hesitancy rates by racial background, where black respondents were about 25 percent said they didn't plan to take the vaccine. White respondents, it was 28 percent, was even more. And Latinx respondents, 37 percent. So we had these racial differences, which are interesting, and I was wondering why, but then it also had the political differences, which were dramatic. In this survey, 41% of Republicans and 49% of Republican men said they didn't want to take the vaccine versus 6% of, re- of Democratic men. So uh, perhaps that explains more the difference in white respondents versus black respondents. But I think overall, whether it's a political issue or a racial issue or an accident, whatever it is, we have this vaccine hesitancy in general. And, and in specific groups. And what's the, what's the best strategy we can, we can take to try to get people to take the vaccine once demand starts to be less than supply, which may happen pretty quickly? Well, you know, if it's like in political terms, um, we're selling a great candidate. So um, the, the most important thing is that this vaccine has been given to hundreds of millions of people um, the three vaccines that are approved in the U.S. have been given uh, over 110 million times. Um, we've had um, very, very few even minor temporary complications. And its effectiveness rate is, is, is extraordinarily high. So um, I actually think that the answer um, is that people actually just want to be educated about what the vaccines are and what they're all about. Um, the, there, there's no, I don't think people want to be persuaded or, uh, manipulated. Um, I think the, there's a set of people who say, Hey, I want to see how it went in the first set of people. And I want, and I have a, a series of questions. Um, and those questions should be answered straightforwardly with a straightforward answer. And I think there's, you know, there's, there's a few groups you, you identified, um, people of color, conservatives, uh, and, and young people, those are the three, those are the p- three groups that, that are broadly identified in almost every survey as having the most questions. I would tell you that I think their questions and concerns are more similar than different. Um, they want to know that the vaccine is safe. They want to know, and they generally want to know that not from the government, but from someone locally that they trust, um, whether it's a doctor or a pharmacist, uh, clergy, uh, someone they trust in their community. And the more people that, that our people see taking the vaccine, the more people say they want to take the vaccine. So those numbers that you described, you know, before the election, those numbers were below 50%. Um, right around inauguration, those numbers were close to 60%. Now they're close to 70% of people who say they'll take the vaccine. And I suspect they'll continue to go up. Um, uh, and, and, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are doing some really interesting work on this topic. Frank Luntz, just, if people haven't seen it, um, released the results of this focus group this weekend that I think everybody uh, would be um, would find really interesting. He talked to a whole bunch of conservatives and he had um, seven or eight different people come in front of them and try different messages on them. And they all failed except one. And at the end, 
um, almost everyone in the group said they were persuaded by that one message and that one voice. Um, and uh, it wasn't um, uh, it wasn't what people I think expected. It was quite um, it was quite surprising. And what was that? Well, so they brought a lot of um, uh, it was kind of celebrity type people, people who they thought they people would trust, and people felt that was very manipulative. This whole idea that ex president and ex president can convince you to take um, a vaccine, none of that stuff worked. But when someone basically um, answered the questions and described to them the decades-long process to develop the mRNA technology that wasn't just developed um, after the virus was discovered, that um, 70,000 people or more than twice as many people that are enrolled in a typical clinical trial were in, were in these clinical trials, that 90% of physicians have taken the vaccine already. Um, you know, people were persuaded by that. And essentially the message was, don't try to manipulate me, just just inform me, just educate me. And so I think this is a less complex challenge than we make it out to be. Well, certainly the trends are moving in the right direction in terms of declining vaccine hesitancy. Uh, I may have misspoken a minute ago. I meant to say that demand is going, uh, supply is going to exceed demand pretty soon, right? Uh, so maybe even by the end of the month. So what are the biggest concerns? The first one that comes to mind are these, these various mutant strains. I'd say to you, interestingly enough, there's an article this morning in the New York Times um, there are microcosms of our yeah. country that are already there. So there's right. an article about um, one of, about some of the tribal nations where they've already reached that saturation point because we we gave the the full allotment of vaccines to to tribal communities at the beginning. So um, there are real live case studies that are going on um, even now, and the differences by state in mm-hmm. terms of how many appointment slots are open are very interesting to look at because they're pretty variable. Well, the great news is so we're, we're rapidly moving from a supply of material problem, a vaccine, to a distribution challenge, which we know we have. And pretty soon the, the main challenge which just will be left will be the hesitancy, the willingness uh, uh, challenge, I think. But the big concern seems, the biggest concern seems to be the, the various mutant strains. How concerned are you and how well do you think the vaccines as we have them now or can tweak them will protect against those strains? Um, I'm concerned about them because our scientists are concerned about them. And, um, you know, the, the they are, I mean, so first of all, as I think everybody knows, these mutations do, do happen. Um, sometimes we have now what we call mutations of concern, and there are roughly five of those. Um, the one that's most concerning is what people talk about is called B117, which is the, which is the mutation that was originally um, in the UK. And it's, it's more contagious and it may be more lethal. Um, and we're starting to see that become in some communities getting close to becoming the preponderance of the virus. So, and at some point soon, uh, maybe by the end of the month, uh, that will be the uh, preponderance of of the um, virus in this country will be B117. And the to your question, though, the vaccines, all three vaccines, are equally as effective against B117, the B117 mutation. Um, so we really have to raise to vaccinate people. And, you know, we could end up in one of three different scenarios. One is which we get, we, we vaccinate people in time and we we, we end up not seeing quite a big lump. I think we'll still see a jump in cases, but I, it, it may not be large. The second 
would be we experience what Europe is experiencing right now, which is they did not get people vaccinated in enough time. And so there are, they're seeing a real growth in cases in those countries. And the third is a new phenomenon. It would be a 2021 scenario where cases grow, but hospitalizations and deaths don't. That, in fact, we have now vaccinated. We've gotten the first vaccine into the arms of about two-thirds of seniors. 80% of the deaths occur in seniors. Um, We could be at a point where there's a lot of spread, relatively speaking, among people under 50, where most of the spread is. But we we don't see the hospitalizations and deaths that we've been seeing throughout 2020 that follow. And that third scenario um, could... You know, there's there's a very good chance that we could live that third scenario, which is one we haven't seen before. Yeah, and that's a little bit more like the flu. I don't mean to minimize the flu because we get forty, fifty thousand deaths a year from the flu, but we have lived with that for a long time. It is. Um, it is. It would be something. Um, it would be something. To, I mean, it would put COVID nineteen in a place where it doesn't. It's not no longer able to sidetrack our society. Um, but uh, but if it's still circulating it's still mutating. And so that's not a, that's not a sustainable scenario. Uh, no. We still have to vaccinate everybody else or we will continue to see the, the virus circulate and mutate regularly. Well, in that case, do we start to have a situation where people who have been vaccinated are kind of living a bit of a different life than those who haven't? Or if I'm inviting people over for dinner, I really want to know if they've had the vaccine or not. Yeah, I mean, I think those are the kinds of things that, we can anticipate, um, you know, employers, airlines, events, you know, they're all thinking through these issues of, um, you know, sh- the, the cruise ships, for example, have, have announced where they, where they have started cruising and they have it here in the U.S. Uh, those are, those are um, people only who are vaccinated are eligible to, to go on their, on their cruises, at least right now. Mm-hmm. So, um you know, there are, uh, there are universities that require, you know, they require our kids to show their uh, medical records and proof of vaccination. Um, this is before COVID-19, right? So, um, you know, you can imagine a situation where um, it starts to become a norm. Um, I don't think uh, that it, like in Israel, where that's driven by the government, I don't think that's what happens here. Um, you know, I spoke about this in one of our briefings yesterday, yeah. um, that we don't think that's the role of our government. Uh, but that, but there will be um, private sector businesses that I think are very focused on this. So you're, you're, you're referring to the notion of immunity passports, which they are doing something with in Israel. And, we're, and uh, what you said yesterday was that, uh, that we wouldn't be doing that as a governmental practice, but we're seeing some of that in the private sector happening. Yes. And what else did you say? You said there were a few things you thought were important about being open source and a few other characteristics. Well, so what we, we, we think they should, should be free. They should be private. It should be secure. It should be available both digitally and in print. It should be available in multiple languages. And yes, it should be built on an open source platform. Basically, what that means is nobody should own the actual standard and be able to charge rent for this. It should be um, something that, um, that, that people who want to build, say, an application or an RFID code or uh, some something can 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 access the single source of truth uh, privately and securely at no cost. Well, that will be helpful in terms of uh, getting back to closer to a sense of normalcy, which is probably the biggest question in everyone's mind is when can we get back to more of a, uh, a sense of normalcy? And I know you said you, 
don't want to try to break the future, but you gave us different scenarios. Um, you know, wh what do you what do you think about the timing of us having more of what we have been missing so much in our lives? Well, you know, the the, the president spoke to this uh, last week as he commemorated the, um, uh, the the one year anniversary that that kind of goes along with what you all are doing here at Commonwealth. And, you know, he, he said, look, if if we all pull together and if things go our way, um, then you could imagine a scenario where this summer, 4th of July, um, we are barbecuing again with small groups of people um, without fear. And, you know, I would tell you that we've already started the journey back. Uh, the CDC announced a couple of weeks ago that vaccinated people can visit with unvaccinated people without masks, um, unless the people who are unvaccinated are high risk for some reason, in which case they advise still wearing masks. But that I, I refer to that as the hugging guidance, that grandparents and grandchildren um, can get together and hug again. And there are, that's something that um, is, a, is a step forward, um, not that people need the CDC's permission um, to hug, but to hear that it's safe again and to know that your grandparents aren't going to be at risk if you have them over. Um, the, you know, the photographs of people who are doing this are uh, just incredibly moving. People send them to me and they post them all the time. Um, so that's a step back. And I think if we want to take more steps, we just have to make sure we don't quit early. You know, we don't stop wearing masks um, right now um, and think that it's all over because uh, it's not. We still have these threats uh, and we'll have them until we deal with them. So we've got the technological help from the vaccines, but we have the behavioral things we have to do too, the, whether it's masks or social distance and so forth. And of course, this has been much in the news lately. Several states have dropped all pandemic restrictions, and that runs counter to the CDC guidelines and the administration's recommendations. So I guess the question is, what should the metrics be at this point in terms of when, when we can open up more? And, and it is interesting to note that Florida has... Um, done about as well as California in its deaths and cases, but has opened up much more when, while California has been much more restricted. So how much do these, how much, how much can these metrics matter or, or what can they predict? Well, you know, these are big states, so it's, it's really misleading to look at an entire state. I mean, you look at a place like San Francisco, where you are, just done a much better job than the rest of the country in terms of deaths, but, you know, they've had more restrictions. So it's been a very been a trade-off, of course, but a lot more people are alive. Um, you know, this is an unpredictable virus, and so there's going to be, you just don't know where the variants are going to be and where they're going to be next. You know, Miami is not looking good as of as of right now. Um, we, we have, um, uh, but, you know, look, we know that there are a lot of things that are safe. A lot of the outdoor, you know, if people are on spring break and they're in some big crowded place indoors and, breathing each other's air and singing and shouting and drinking. That doesn't sound quite so safe. If they're outdoors at the beach, you know, um, we should be, um, uh, you know, well, well you, you know, th there are, there are safer things people, people actually can be doing. Um, and it's, um, it's, um, we haven't shown throughout this entire pandemic that we're willing to put much of our lives on hold um, or at least some segment of the population um, you know, I would certainly have liked to see Governor Abbott in Texas um, wait a little longer before he released all of these measures. Um, I think we have reason to believe that if we do, we can do it permanently. I'd hate to see it done temporarily 
And, you know, the, the, there are certain parts of the population where mask wearing sort of threatens their identity or is a statement that they don't like making. And, you know, I, I think that's, I think that's challenging. I'm a little more, I don't feel as strongly about, you know, businesses opening um, partially in businesses and places that have good ventilation and, and all of those things. But the, but the mask wearing um, is, is really something that we have to just keep up until uh, we get to a point where we don't, and that's not going to be forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it raises another question about how we talk about these things in safety. I, I do a lot of COVID-related programs, not as many as you, but enough so that family and friends are frequently asking me if I think something is safe. And it seems like they want a binary answer. It's safe or it's not. And as we know, you know, safety, it's really a continuum with plenty of uncertainty along it. But, of course, if I'm the CDC, I, I need to make a recommendation as a, a fairly bright line or at least, you know, categories which uh, shouldn't be broken. Now, the, this administration has been accused of being overly conservative or overly negative, and you're a key point person for the communication. So how do you and your colleagues think about just how conservative or negative to be, you know, not wanting to overpromise, uh, but, uh, but not wanting to be so conservative that people just ignore the recommendations? No, I think we try to go straight down the middle, tell people the truth, try to give straight answers. Um, and we, there's a lot we don't know. So, you know, I think sometimes things are perceived as people being negative when the things you see around you are, oh, well, cases are dropping. Mm-hmm. And unless someone's saying this is wonderful and things are better, you get accused of being negative. Uh, I don't think that's being negative. I think that's acknowledging that this is a virus that whips around and kicks you in the butt when you don't pay attention to it. And so we have to be very straightforward with people. And our goal is to let people hear from the scientists directly. You know, let Rochelle Walensky talk on behalf of the CDC scientists, CDC scientists, let Tony Fauci talk on behalf of of the the what the science of the vaccines are and what they're doing. Look, I mean, I'll tell you that I think the the fatigue that a lot of us describe as feeling over this over COVID-19, I think part of the reason we feel it is because we've been told for a year that this is just about to end. It's about to end. It's about to end. And and really um, under, I think, uh, among other things that I think were a mistake, you know, I think President Trump continually refusing to acknowledge that this was a big problem and preparing people for a marathon. And if I think if he would have said, look, we're going to be at this for maybe a year. Just have to all buckle down together. Uh, still would have been hard, but um, but I felt that coming in and over promising something and then not having it come to fruition, that the public really um, is just about out of patience with that. So we've tried the best we can to say here's what we know, and at the same time we work hard in the background to make it better. So we announced that we'll have vaccines by July, but we go to work. We enlist Merck to try to help Johnson & Johnson produce more vaccines. We get that done, and we come out and we announce that it's actually going to be May that we'll have enough vaccines. Uh, but we don't announce May in hopes that something positive will happen. We, we try to only talk about what we're, what we're sure of so that the people who are listening to us can feel like, okay, I can, I can rely on what they're telling me because um, it makes sense. Yeah. We have an audience question, just as we think uh, that we're getting, uh, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel for this pandemic is, what are the chances for a future pandemic? Well, look, I I think um, we should be wise enough now to feel like this was our starter bug and that this can happen here. 
and we have to have the defenses. We have to have the strategic stockpile. We have to have um, the, the will among the public to know that uh, we can control infectious diseases if we take basic health measures. Uh, and so, you know, we always have to be prepared for these these things. And by the way, it's not just pandemics. There are things, uh, but bi- there's biodiversity crisis looming. There is, um, um, you, you know, um, the, the resistance to antibiotics. There's other impacts of climate change. You know, these are all things that are kind of out of our minds most of the time. That's what they have in common. You know, they're, they don't, we don't think of them as part of our world, yet they have a they have a chance when they come to just change everything. And, you know, I think this feeling of that we're immune from it all as a wealthy country um, is one that um, I think it'll be um, maybe uh, to some extent a challenge to us to feel like we've lost that. But at the same time, um, we've also shown that if we put our minds to it, um, we can be uh, smarter and protect ourselves from these things. Mm-hmm. This mRNA technology, which fortunately was on the shelf, you know, it was we didn't just start working on it last year, uh, but we were able to to grab it and and, and really deploy it very quickly. Uh, is it likely that would be helpful in the next uh, pandemic of similar sort? I think it is very likely. Um, it's very likely that. Um, and look, one of the, one of our jobs now is not just to defeat this pandemic. But it's to make sure we have the domestic capacity to very quickly and even quicker amount of time than we did here, um, which was very rapid, but to cut that time in half. I mean, that's one of the goals that I think we have for ourselves is that we are ready, should something else come back, that we can respond. And I think it's not just with vaccines, but it's also with therapeutics. Um, and antivirals, um, uh, di- quick diagnostic testing, the ability to get those things out quickly um, will make the difference between lots and lots of lives. We weren't ready this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and and um, we, we've got to be readier than next time. Uh, much has been uh, said and written about um, the disproportionate impact of this pandemic on people of color. And I know that's a big priority for the Biden administration. So how can we improve health equity in terms of both exposure to the virus, uh, vaccination and treatment? Well, look, the first the first thing is just think about this. Um, the, vac- the vaccine is free. So imagine if imagine if you had to this work like the rest of the healthcare system where you had to pay a copay or, or a deductible or something. Uh, imagine how even more disproportionate things would be. So I think there's a really interesting lesson for us um, in getting rid of that roadblock. Now, there are other roadblocks um, to get to access to health and access to care. Um, and the, they, we are seeing them all uh, you know, in the works. But if we combat them, um, you know, the first thing we did was we said, okay, well, let's go put the vaccines into neighborhoods and communities that need them the most. And one of the things that happened right away was people from San Francisco would come over to Oakland and take all the appointments. Um, And that happened all over the country, just picking um, two cities, you know, well. Um, And so we had said, okay, well, we've got to reserve appointment times 
uh, for people. Um, and then we start to deal with other issues. Uber and Lyft donated free rides to people to get their vaccination. Um, then we, we, we created um, thousands of mobile vans. Um, we've got hundreds out today. There'll be thousands more since the, since the American Rescue Plan. Community health centers, big community vaccination sites. Um, and you know we have a center now in Philadelphia that we opened where 80% of the vaccines have gone to people of color. Um, and so we can do this. Um, but the one thing we know about the healthcare system is the structural advantages and disadvantages are so embedded that if you do nothing, if you simply say we're going to roll out vaccines and hope it will be equitable, it will be very inequitable. So you have to take these extraordinary steps. And if we take them, um, we can get them into the arms of the people. I mean, let's face it, this is an occupational and a living condition disease. If you live in multi-generational household in close quarters, and if you work facing the public every day, you are more at risk. Um, therefore, we need to vaccinate those folks um, as early and as quickly as we can. Yeah. We had an audience question about how rare cases of COVID are among vaccinated people. And then another one that you may or may not be able to answer since you're not a doctor. But if uh, what about these monoclonal antibodies? And if someone has been vaccinated uh, but thinks they have the, the disease, should they, um, uh, should they, could they take a monoclonal antibody? So the vaccine won't protect 100% of, of people. Um, and, you know, there are, I have seen data, there are, there are cases, we, you know, we don't have a complete look at how many breakthrough cases they are. There are, but there are some. Um, and those tend to be milder, uh, but, but there will be some um, because this is not 100% vaccine, but they will be, generally speaking, milder cases. Um, and of course, um, the variant could have an impact here as well. Um, now, the ability to protect against severe cases uh, and hospitalizations, and death, those are, uh, that's still, um, I think, if not 100%, very close to 100%. Um, the monoclonals are, um, in, generally, in general, a amazing but underused resource. If we can get them to folks, and we've got hundreds of thousands of them all over the country, um, to people earlier in the, in the course of the disease, they are very effective at presenting the progression of the disease. Those are going to have to be made easier and easier. They're going to have to be moving to subcutaneous, to orals, um, and and um, they're, they're, they're pretty expensive. So to the extent that they became something that we wanted everybody to take, we would have to find a way to do it more efficiently and affordably. Uh, but, but that's also pretty incredible science. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a bit about an issue that seems to have not gotten as much uh, uh, discussion lately, and that's testing. I, I noticed that testing's dropped about 25% since the administration took office. And that was the one thing where Ashish Jha on, on the In the Bubble podcast recently said, you know, I think the administration should, should do more here. Why has it dropped and what's the testing strategy going forward? Is testing just less important as we have more, uh, more people vaccinated? Well, I think we need different types of testing. And in fact, we're going to have some major announcements tomorrow, which, uh, you know, just our timing is off by a day. Uh, that we're going we're to be talking about. But I'd say in general, um, we need different types of testing. We need much more asymptomatic testing. Um, we need much more convenient, low-cost at-home testing. We need more event-based testing at point of care. So I, I'm not as concerned with the volume of tests as I am 
who we're testing and making sure we're doing it right and frequently. I mean, I would counter Ashish, and I think he would probably agree with me, and say if we had great wastewater testing, which I think we are, which are, which we are, which is now ready for prime time, um, and we had, um, and we were able to test schools and dormitories and um, congregate care facilities, and then target tests, and then allow people to do at-home tests as needed, and then we had PCRs in hospitals. We may be doing a lot less actual testing, but our surveillance would be quite high. Um, and so what he's really talking about is making sure that we continue to have strong surveillance and that we don't end up um, with outbreaks that we can't see. Uh, but, you know, it's tough to measure the absolute number. Remember, um, our test positivity rate is down at around 4% now, mm-hmm. which, and as long as your test, and this is a point where I think Ashish is um, not quite right, as long as your test positivity rate is going down, that means you're doing enough testing, generally speaking. When your test positivity rate goes up, that means you're not, you're not doing enough testing. I, I worry that we're going to be um, cresting, or, or what's the opposite of cresting, go flatlining on at around, out. Yep. Yeah, bottoming out around 4%. And yep. if that happens uh, and we start to see test positives go up, then, then uh, we're going to need to make sure we, we are ramping up testing in places we need to. And what's the assumption about if we've got, say, a 4% testing positivity rate, what's the assumption about how that relates to the actual incidence of infection in the population? Does that mean we've got 4% in the population? We're not testing the whole population, right? No. Yeah. I mean, 4% of people with symptoms are, are, are testing positive. Mm-hmm. So you think about that. Generally speaking, you're not getting tested unless, because these, are, these don't count the antigen tests, yeah. right? So, again, this is another place where Ashish's numbers may be off is there's a whole bunch of people doing at-home antigen tests and point-of-care antigen tests. Don't get, those don't get reported um, because they're just, they're just used for the, that specific purpose. But 4% of the time that people go in for a test that gets reported, um, uh, and then so you've got everyone else in, in the world. So that, 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 that implies a very, very low incident rate. So the incident rate's measured, as you know, on, a, on a cases per 100,000. And, you know, with cases per 100,000, we've got many communities in the country, you know, that are um, at 35, 40, 50, you know, some that are above 100, some that are below, some that are at, you know, 5 or 10 per 100,000. So this is, um, this is um, a better, better position than it's been before. I think we're only, I think we're at a place where, let's see, the peak, 90% of counties were considered to be at dangerous levels of spread, and now it's about 45%. So it's still there, but but it's seen some significant improvement. Right. We had a quick uh, clarifying question that really went back to the uh, immunity passports piece about specifically about so for some kind of COVID vaccination cards for international travel and for U.S. visitors or visa holders. Think that'll be any different uh, from the just the, uh, the the domestic issues? It could be different. I mean, if if there are if there are international requirements, just like a, your visa today, you know, you might need a special visa to get into. Um, a, a certain country, um, certain countries might require you to have um, certain, you know, that your immunizations are up to date by a certain time. And that may be a different standard than we use in the U.S. It could be um, a, a lighter standard. It could be a heavier standard. It could be that um, in China, they might say you can only have taken, this is probably not going to be the case, but they could say you could only have taken the Chinese vaccine to get in. I'm using this, this is an absurd example, but 
but you can imagine um, a country having its own rules and then you know your passport would you might have to have a um a, a do some do something additional if you're going to travel internationally like you do before the pandemic if you were going to go to certain countries there are certain things certain shots you had to take sure Sure. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you've got a hard stop because you've got a real job fighting this pandemic for our country. So I appreciate that. So we've come to the point uh, in the program, we have time just for one more question. And uh, I'd like to ask you, what do you expect the U.S. will do differently in the next pandemic? Well, there is evidence that countries who've been through this kind of experience with the pandemic um, are much better able to address it the next time around. And, um, you know, I think I'm not quite sure I could that anyone knows the answer of what exactly describes how how why we did so poorly this time. Um, But I think as certain people started to feel safer, namely people who are capable of isolating in safety and comfort, um, they you know, it, it became less threatening and they took it a little less seriously. And when it when it you know, I think certain people felt like, well, this is only hitting old people. I'm safe. Um, that might not be the case next time. I mean, this could, you could imagine a pandemic that targets children. Um, you could imagine a pandemic that doesn't, that, that is more lethal, like Ebola. You can imagine a pandemic that is more contagious, like the measles. You can imagine an awful combination of something that's as contagious as the measles and as deadly as Ebola. Um, which is what biological weapons are have been that the that the Soviet Union been working on since the twenties. Um, so, um, you know, this is this is something that we should all, I think, have an opportunity to reflect on after we get through the worst of the crisis. As um, this is kind of our starter bug, in some ways, um, it, it wasn't HIV/AIDS um, devastated this country, but again, to my point. Um, some people felt at risk and some people felt safe and, and we didn't really internalize the lessons of that. And I hope this time um, we do better than that. I mean, that that um, I felt a lot of shame going through COVID-19 as I, as I thought about how indifferent the country really was to the brutality of HIV AIDS and, um, and how much we, by and large, didn't learn the lessons from that. And I think we owe it to all the people we lost uh, to do better um, and take care of each other. Right. Well, that's probably a good note to end on. I want to thank you, Andy, both for helping us kick off this series, this anniversary series, and also for all that you do for our country. I appreciate that. And to our audience, uh, to learn about additional programs in this series, please visit our website, commonwealthclub.org. And while you're there, please consider becoming a member and supporting our efforts. So to all of us, stay healthy. I'm Mark Zitter, and this program's now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.